Morning. Um, today we'll be spending time with the Lord in uh, Exodus 23, verses uh, 20 through uh, 24. I'll be reading 20 through 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Thanks, Taylor. So the hope today is to get all the way to the end of chapter 24. But I wanted to just read a couple verses there as we get started. And um, what we're going to be looking at is God's promise to the Israelites uh, for a future conquest of Canaan, uh, which is an ancient land uh, that God had promised to his people in in many different ways. And uh, they're now beginning to get near the, the time in their history where they're going to actually overtake the land. And, and so this is a, a moment where God is reiterating, but maybe providing a little bit more detail than he has in the past of a promise that he's given to them over and over again. And then there's this whole scene in chapter 24 about the giving of the covenant. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to look at all that in turn. We'll be reading some more of the passage as we go. But as I've, I've been thinking about this passage this week and, and studying through this, I've been thinking about a, a book I read recently you guys, uh, you guys probably know by this point, I, I really enjoy studying history. I, I like to read biographies in particular. And I was thinking recently, one of the things I really enjoy about reading through a biography and, and kind of reliving the, the past in some way is as the reader, if I want to, I can always know the end of the story. And, and this particular book that I just recently finished was about... Uh, President Ronald Reagan and his uh, relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, kind of the nuclear peace talks going on in the 80s. Uh, I happened to, to live through that. I wasn't paying real close attention to them at the time as a young child, but I, I was here on the planet for that. And I'm here on the planet today, so I know eventually something worked out pretty well, right? And so as I'm reading that story and, and thinking about what's going on, there are moments when it seems as if uh, their relationship, the relationship between those two men, is going to get frayed to the point that the nations they represent may come against each other, not in a cold war, as it has been called by historians, but in a very active and dangerous war. Uh, however, of course, as a, a person who, who lived through all that and uh, knows our world today, I, I know as I'm reading it, that didn't actually happen. So there's this kind of comfort in knowing the future, as I'm reliving the past and, and reading through it, it's, it's comforting to know that eventually some treaties were signed. And it's, it's fascinating to learn about the history and all that happened there. But the fear of the moment is removed for me as a reader. It's, it's pretty easy for me to kind of enter into the scene and think about what it was like. But I, I don't have the fear of the unknown as I'm reliving it because I, I know where it's going to go. Now, as we live out our own lives in the present, uh, we do not know how things are going to pan out. And so we have that fear. In fact, that fear can be maddening to us as we look to our future and we think, what is it going to be? Where is this going? How will this story end? And often we don't know. 
We have our theories, we have our, our thoughts, we have our hopes, but we don't truly know exactly how things are going to go. And so I, all that's kind of been in my mind as I've been reading through this passage, because in this moment in Israel's history, they, they've just received the law. They're still at Mount Sinai. They begin to take a look to the future here, particularly at the end of chapter 23, and they themselves don't know what we know as readers. We know that eventually they'll get to Canaan. We know there are whole books of our Bible about how this plays out, but they didn't know any of that at the moment. All they had were these words, these promises from God that, that spoke into the void of their unknown and, and showed them in some sense a glimpse of their future. And I think that's what the promises of God are intended to do in the context of Scripture. They're, they're, they're given to God's people to give them a glimpse of what He knows and what He has planned and what He is leading them toward in their future so as to give them strength for the present. So when we look at Exodus 23 and 24 here, I think there are two major themes to the promises given. Uh, there's a promise of victory over enemies and there's a promise of a relationship with God that is going to endure the test of time. And we'll, we'll look at what that looks like as we go through the passage. But when I think about what God's doing in this moment, just a, a brief recap of Exodus. They, they've been rescued from Egypt. They've been brought to this place, Mount Sinai. Last week we looked at how they were given the law. And the law is like a guide that's going to, to light their way and show them where to go from here. The, the promises of God... They're really like a fuel for following that law. So if, if the law is a lamp to their feet and a light into their path, the, the promises are the fuel that propel them forward on the journey ahead. And so as we're reading this passage thousands of years later, what we have to ask is what can we learn from these promises and, and how can these promises propel us forward on the journey God has us on? is we don't quite know where our lives are going. We don't quite know what our future holds. And so I want to look at each of these two themes in, in turn here. So the, the first one is the promise of victory. And, and that was summed up really in the, the short section Taylor read there as God speaks about how he's going to send this angel before the people in verse 20, uh, how he's going to bring them to the place that he has prepared. He gives them this warning not to rebel against the angel. We don't know exactly who this angel was. Uh, some folks say this was probably just a, a special angel, and, and he was given this particular task to represent the Lord and, and lead the people. He was the commander of the Lord's army. That's how he introduces himself to Joshua in the book of Joshua. Uh, some people say maybe what's being called an angel here was actually the Son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation, thousands and thousands of years later, sort of a glimpse of who he would be. I don't think, think the text is completely clear. I think you could go either way on that. But the point is, whoever this angel is, he's a messenger from God. And God is telling the people, you better listen to him. If you listen to him, he's going to lead you down the right way. If you disobey him, it's going to lead you into trouble. And so they're given this, uh, this promise then that the angel is going to lead them into this land. And as you look at verse 23 there, he, God references all of these peoples that live in the land. So we've got a bit of an issue as the people of Israel get to this land that God has promised. It is occupied. There are people there. And so at the end of verse 23 there, God gives a promise to his people as to what he's going to do to those people. He says, I'm going to blot 
them out. I'm going to remove them from the land. And as you see, if you were to read on through the passage, the way God is going to do that is he's going to faithfully uh, protect his people in battle, and he's going to call them to faithfully take up arms. So you are going to block them out as you take up shield and sword and go to war with these people. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the Canaanites, but just as, as a brief aside, uh, these people, uh, other parts in Scripture make clear to us, uh, th- these people were engaged in some absolutely evil practices. So, so some of what's going on in the background here, and we would get into if we were in the book of Joshua or something like that uh, this morning, some of what's going on in the background here is these people have been doing things that are evil in the sight of God. And, and God is not only bringing Israel into the land, he's bringing judgment upon these people. I think sometimes we read this passage and we're like, whoa, 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 what did the Hittites do? (laughs) Where did they come from and why are we blotting blotting them out? Well, there's a whole background there. Uh, When when you learn about the history and all that that these folks had done, uh, there's a a reckoning that's happening in in their world. It's a little bit like what we have seen in the book of Exodus with the people of Egypt. They were worshiping false gods. They were denying the Lord God of Israel. Uh, They were engaged in evil practices, and and God brought judgment upon them through the plagues and through the work he did in his own people. And so that's happening in the background. He's telling the people, he's promising them, I'm going to lead you into this land, and and I'm going to clear a path for you, and you're going to settle there, and you're going to prosper there. That's what all of uh, chapter 20 through the rest of chapter 23 looks like. So here's a question I think we have to ask as we read this this morning as non-Israelites, not on the precipice of entering uh, Canaan, (laughs) the promised land thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, How do we read promises like this? I mean, maybe you've experienced this before where you're reading through the scriptures, probably in the Old Testament in particular, and you read something like this and and you're like, what does this have to do with me? I I don't know how to take this. There's some really sweet words here. Like there's a part in the middle there that talks about how He's going to bless your bread and water. He'll take away sickness from among you. That'd be great. We'd love to experience that. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So there's a part of us that thinks, well, what do I do to get to that? That sounds like a great blessing. But, But then there's this other side that says, well, this is ancient history. These words were spoken to a particular people, particular place and time, and and they're we're not those people. That's not our time. So are these our promises? What do they have to do with us? And so here's how I would encourage you to to look at passages like this, particularly when you come across these promises in the Old Testament given to God's people. I think the best thing we can do with them is look through the promise to the God who makes the promise, right? So the, the the promises point us to God himself. They give us a picture of his character, And they give us, in a sense, a precedent of how he works. Now, this, in particular, is talking about how he worked in this specific time through these particular people in this place. We're not in that time. We're not those people. It's going to look different in our day. But what we can gain from this is this picture of the heart of God. We can understand a precedent of how he tends to work with his people. So we want to look through the promises, to the God who makes the promises. 
And then we want to think about how our context relates to what's going on in the passage. So broadly speaking in Exodus, we've seen a, a, a pattern developing now, and we've, we've kind of shaped our sermon series around this. So in the fall, we talked about the God who rescues, and we saw how God rescued his people from Egypt and brought them to himself. Uh, this semester, we're talking about the God who renews, and we're learning about how God renews his people in all these different ways and, and makes us new and shapes us into his image so that we can live for him and bring glory to him in our world. What's going on here is they look to the future. So we might add a third category is that this idea of reward, that, that the God who rescues renews his people to experience reward. And so here in their present, God is giving them this picture of future glory in hopes that it will fuel them through the journey that's in front of them. Or to put it another way, we are renewed by gazing upon the reward that awaits us. I think that's what's happening in Exodus 23. And I think it's something we can learn from. Because as believers, our reward looks a bit different, but we've been promised a reward nonetheless. We've been promised an ultimate victory. So I want to ask the question, what can we learn from this promise of victory here? what we find here in Exodus 23. And I see four truths that I think this passage points us to in terms of, again, the heart of God and how he works with his people. So I'm going to just give you four truths related to this promise. The first one is God promises victory, but we have to do our part. God promises victory, but we have to do our part. So here he promises to blot out the Canaanites to take these people out of the land, but he tells Israel, that's going to happen as you go to battle. They have a part to play. Right? So we can think about the parallel in our own lives. God has promised us as believers ultimate victory in our battles with sin, in our battles with our enemies. Ultimate victory conquering over sin and death. Right? Think of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise of victory. That's how your story ends. That's how our battles will come to a close. That's the last chapter. We don't know all the details to get there, but we can understand the future. And it can fuel us in the present. He will bring ultimate victory in our battles, but we have a part to play. Right? We have to take up shield and sword in our own way, in our own day. And so the, the promise of that future reward is meant to fuel us in, in the fight we, we face today. So that's the first one. God promises victory, but we must do our part. Here's the second one. Victory is the second thing we kind of see in this passage that relates to this reward renewal thing we're talking about. Victory itself is a process. Victory is a process. Look at uh, verse 29 with me. This is, in, in uh, my opinion, my favorite part of the, the passage here. Verse 29, again, think of the context. God is telling the people, I'm going to blot these people out of the land. I'm going to send you into this land, and we're going to clear we're gonna, uh, clear of these folks. And then, but in verse 29, he says it this way. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Think about what is happening here. 
So God is saying, I'm sending you to this land that I have promised you. There's this future glory that awaits you. And there are these people in the way. God himself, no doubt, has the power to clean house and clear the land ahead of the Israelites. He could make the path ahead very simple, very peaceful, and painless. But he doesn't. He says, we're going to do this by you guys going to battle. And guess what happens in battles? Sometimes people die. Sometimes people are left behind. Some people who hear this promise will not make it to that place. And so the people, I'm sure, are like us, tempted to think, well, why don't you just wipe them out? I mean, we saw what you did to the Egyptians. Can we just find another sea and meet them all over there and do that trick again? Why, why does this have to be so hard? Why does this have to take so long? Why do we have to wait to see your glory? And God actually gives them a reason, and it's incredibly practical. And as you step back and think about it, it's incredibly wise. He says, I will not drive them out before you in one year. I'm in verse 29. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beast multiply against you. He says, look, if I just zapped the land of Canaan and, and all the people were gone, you know what would happen? The land itself would become desolate. The wild beast would take over. And by the time you guys got there, it wouldn't be a place you wanted to live. You see, God had this wise and practical purpose for taking them through this slow and painful process. I find that incredibly comforting. Having been through a few slow and painful processes myself, and having sat through some moments where I think, Lord, why are we still fighting this? Why is this still happening? Why are we still here? Why does this enemy seem so strong. And I think one thing we see here is that victory is a process for God's people. But the path is not random. It's ordered by divine wisdom. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you feel like God has ceased to work in your life. Maybe you feel like as you think about the major things going on in your world right now, maybe you think the Lord has stopped working. Could it be that he is just not working at your pace? Could it be that you have a plan and, and you want to see things come together in a certain way and he is in fact working, but it's at a slower pace than you would like? This passage is here to remind us in part that when we experience things like that, it's actually for our good. Our path is paced by divine wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes our enemies fall slower than we would like for them to. But the Lord always has a purpose for that. And we see it in this really just practical way here as God is preparing his people for the land. So victory is a process, sometimes slower than we'd like. A third truth I think we see from this is that one of our greatest enemies as the people of God is complacency. One of our greatest enemies is complacency. So God commands the people to get rid of the Canaanite influence in the land there. Uh, he warns them, if you do not, you will be led astray by foreign gods. That would really be like a return to Egypt. It would be a, a geographical change, but it would be the same kind of experience, just uh, intermixed with a bunch of pagan people that worship false gods. And so the Lord tells them to, to rid the land of that influence, 
and he makes it very clear to them that their greatest threat is going to be this, this, uh, this temptation to grow comfortable with the Canaanites instead of conquering them. And again, if, if we just lay aside for a moment the, the battles and wars and, and fights of the book of Joshua and just kind of step back and think about the picture that God is painting here, I think we get a warning as Christians in our own struggle with sin. For us, one of our greatest enemies is the uh, enemy of complacency. You know, this, this danger of growing comfortable with sin's lingering influence in our lives. So, so we think about some issue that we're fighting, and we, and we think about how we've fought it before, and we've been battling it for years, and often the reason you're still battling it today is because you've never truly conquered it. You've never truly wiped it out of your life altogether. You've been comfortable just kind of downplaying it. I just won't do that as often. I just won't go there as much. I just won't think about that or pursue that with as much zeal when the Lord says we need to wipe it out of our lives altogether. So again, I think this paints a picture for us that one of the greatest enemies in our walk with the Lord is complacency, this temptation to grow comfortable with the things that the Lord has commanded us to conquer. So that's the third one. The fourth one is uh, one of our greatest weapons is looking to the promises of God. And so, again, just trying to think through what can we learn from this scene? How do these promises uh, here point us to the God who has made the promise and, and makes similar promises to us today? And I think part of what we get here is this idea that one of our greatest weapons is actually grabbing hold of these promises and clinging to them. So if you look in verse 25 there in the passage, we didn't read this, but uh, that's where God makes the promise to them that basically he will take care of them. And, and the, the collection of things he promises there, it may seem a bit random to us. Uh, it was not random to the Israelites as they entered the land of Canaan because there were, similar to what we have, have seen in Egypt, there were particular false gods among the Canaanites whom the Canaanites would have looked to to provide these very things. Right, so God, when God promises to them, you will not miscarry and no one will be barren. He's protecting them from this temptation to, when they get to Canaan, to make sacrifices to this foreign god of fertility. It's, it's that kind of thing. He's saying, don't look to these things to provide what you need. I will give them to you. I am sufficient for you. And so part of what he's doing is he's training his people to look to his promises as a weapon in their fight for holiness, in their fight to obey Him. So I think as believers, we should look to the promises of God in a similar way. I'm excited our ladies, when you get to the women's retreat, uh, are going to focus the, the weekend on the promises of God. Kind of how do we think about these things? And how do, how do we wield them as weapons in our daily battles? I think that will be a, a really profitable study. Because the reality is, none of us can fight sin by just trying to stay out of trouble. We have to not just look at what we're trying to avoid, but also look at what we're aiming to embrace. What is it the Lord offers us and provides for us and promises us that tastes better and is better and is longer lasting than the fleeting promises of sin? So I think each of these truths ought to shape how we pursue spiritual victory in our own lives. As we look at this, this promise of victory long ago, 
we can, we can learn more about how we pursue victory in our own lives today. The, the second big promise here as we turn to 24, and we're going to hit this pretty quickly. There, there's a lot to cover here, but it's, it's really just a, a, a scene. Um, the, the promise of chapter 24 is a promise of relationship. So uh, the end of chapter 23 promises victory, and chapter 24 promises relationship. And the scene here is the covenant is finally and fully ratified. So God has been speaking to Moses for several chapters now. He's given them the law. The people have made these different commitments. And in this moment, there's this kind of consecration of the covenant. It's, it's ratified. It's affirmed finally and fully. And, and again, it's a bit like a, a wedding scene in that uh, each party has exchanged their vows, and now they are making these promises to one another. And then this covenant that has brought them together is now going to undergird their future. And I do think it's really helpful to think about the, the covenant God makes with Israel here that, that's confirmed. And now it's, it's confirmed, by the way, in some, some really weird Old Testament ways. <laughs> right, so uh, Moses and, and the people are going to kill a bunch of animals. Uh, he's going to take the blood of those animals. He's going to pour that on the altar. And then he's going to take some of it and throw it on the people. So just be glad we're in the New Testament world today and you don't have any animals back here behind the curtains. Okay, so uh, this is but we can look at this kind of through a New Testament lens. Uh, In a few moments, I'm going to introduce communion. We're going to talk about drinking blood and eating flesh. So don't act like we're better than these people. Right. It's just we have to understand it in the right framework. Uh, the, The people of Israel didn't typically take baths in blood. Uh, This was a sacred moment. And what God is doing there is he's showing the people this covenant is a matter of life and death. It took death to get us here. And if you stray from it, it'll lead to more death. So there's a solemnity uh, taking place and, and being underscored by all that you read about there and all the blood being thrown around. But I think, I think what we can take from this as, as New Testament believers, as we look at it this morning, is, is the value of a covenant as a foundation for a relationship. Right, so we have categories for this, again, particularly as we think about marriage. It's one thing for two people to say they really, really like each other. Maybe even they love each other and they're going to be together forever and they just kind of see one another. It's, it's another thing to enter into a covenant that undergirds that relationship that draws lines around it and says, this is who we're going to be and this is what we're going to be committed to. There's this great line in a sermon by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a, um, a German pastor uh, who, who uh, kind of stood up against Hitler and the Nazi regime in, in the midst of the 1940s, ended up in prison. Turned out his niece was going to get married. He had promised her he would do the wedding, officiate that ceremony, uh, but he was in prison. So he wrote a wedding sermon from a prison and, and sent it to his niece. This is what I would say if I weren't behind bars at your wedding. And in the midst of that, he talks to the couple about how they have entered into marriage because of their love for one another. And he says, but now from this day forward, your marriage is actually going to support your love for one another. And I think that's so, there's such wisdom in that as you think about marriage, because there are days in, in marriage where, where love itself may not be the first thing on your mind. 
You're thinking about how are we going to pay the mortgage? You're thinking about how are we going to take care of this debt? How are we going to organize this plan? How are we going to deal with these kids? How are we going to solve this problem? Where are we going to go from here? And you've got all these questions on your mind and, and your hearts are not as full of love as they were that moment that she walked down the aisle and, and you stood up there among all your family and friends and exchanged those vows. Bonhoeffer says in that moment, your love, it may feel kind of weak. And it's, it's probably not strong enough to support the relationship at that point. But you know what is? The covenant. Those promises. Those vows you exchanged. They're a sturdy foundation. And so he says to his young niece, you got to this point being led by your love, but from this point forward, it's, it's this marriage covenant that is going to support your love and not the other way around. And I just like that picture when looking at Exodus 24, because it reminds us that all that's happening here is a picture of a firm foundation for a relationship with God. So as the people of Israel look back on this moment, and they think, why did Moses throw blood all over us? And all that kind of stuff. One thing they're reminded of is that their relationship with Yahweh, their relationship with the Lord, their God, it's, it's not a fleeting thing. It's not just a, a passing fancy. It's founded on this eternal covenant. And that provides a firm foundation for their relationship. And that, of course, is something that we can hope in as New Testament believers too. So as we look at this whole passage together and we step back, I think that the big point that I take from Exodus 23 and 24 is that when God rescues a person, God is only beginning the process of bringing victory into that person's life. The, the rescue is the beginning, not the end. And I think sometimes as Christians, we get this a little mixed up. We kind of tell our stories. Here is my life. I was doing all this stuff. I was lost and confused. And then the Lord saved me. And it's like full stop, end of story. I'm just kind of hanging out until heaven. But, but that's not the picture the Lord paints for us at all. The, the rescue is the beginning of the journey. And then we've got this long path of renewal in front of us before we reach that eternal reward. He doesn't rescue us to leave us where we are. Right? He has a plan for our future, and He has these promises that will fuel us along the way. And He doesn't rescue us to leave us on our own. He has this firm foundation of an eternal covenant made with and through His Son that undergirds our relationship with Him. So as we close today, I want to just give you a couple questions to think about. Some things I've been reflecting on this week as I read Exodus 23 and 24, I'd invite you to, to go through it some uh, this afternoon, later this week, and as you get your mind around it. I think these are a few things you can, you can uh, reflect on as you, as you read it. Again, again, like we said last week, if you're going over this in your small group, these are some questions you could think through as a group. Uh, number one would be, are you hoping in the promises of God? If the promises of God are meant to fuel us forward, toward the future He has for us? Are, are those your hope? Or, or, do, or do you have something else out in front of you that's kind of keeping you going, something that might not quite be able to deliver? So are you hoping in the promises of God? Has complacency conquered you in your fight with sin? Do you think about what God is telling the people to do here? He's, he's 
uh, urging them on as they go into Canaan. You've got to wipe the land clean of this, these pagan influences. There's a warning there. We can't play with sin. We can't be complacent with the things that want to conquer us and kill us. So has complacency conquered you? Is there any part of you that has grown content and stopped pursuing the future that God has for you? And as you, as you think about that question, I want to just remind you again that our hope for the future rests not in our ability to pursue these things, but in what God has done in His covenant with us in Christ. So it's, it's to that that we'll turn our attention as we approach communion. Um, we do this each week here, and as I mentioned earlier, it is a, a symbol of something that Jesus gave to us. He actually picked up on the language of this very passage when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And if you recognize that as we were reading through it, but Jesus, on the night that, uh, of his last supper with his disciples, he, he picked up uh, the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. That's an echo of what Moses said on the mountain to the people there. Uh, he also told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And so you're going to take this and you're going to take this over and over and over in remembrance of me in anticipation of that place. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. There's uh, bread and juice at the tables in the back of the room, and I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. And if you're with us this morning and, and you are hoping in these truths, if you are uh, in, in a relationship with Jesus and you're following him each day, then we want to invite you to take communion with us. Uh, if, if you would uh, consider yourself not a believer this morning and, and you would think, you know, this is interesting to me. I'm processing all this stuff, but I just don't know if I'm there. Uh, we, we would invite you to, to stay seated during communion because this is a, a time for Christians to take steps of faith and really act out the things we believe. And so we we'd just ask you to stay seated. That'd be the most appropriate thing for you to do. I'm going to pray for us and I want to invite us to take communion together. And then we're going to sing a couple more songs as we continue to praise the Lord. So let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the hope we have of a future. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for the way it leads us forward. I pray that the promises you have made to us, Lord, would propel us, uh, would, would engage our hearts and our minds, would energize us, would keep us going. I know each of us have areas of our life where we are wondering, Lord, why? Why are things going so slow? Uh, why does progress seem uh, so minimal? Uh, why do my enemies seem so strong and why do I seem so weak? And so, Lord, help us to trust uh, what you are doing. Help us to trust that uh, you have wise and loving reasons for bringing about our victories uh, at the pace in which you bring them about. And Lord, as we uh, go from here, and even in this moment as we go to the communion table, Lord, I pray that we would, we would do so with the hope of a covenant, uh, providing the foundation for what we do here. That we know our relationship with you does not rest upon our, um, our feelings or how we are doing today, but it, re it rests on what you have done in Christ and on the, the covenant that he has made with you and that he has made with each of us. And so we pray these things in his name.